Build up, don't throw up. If, if I'm in your audience and your, your slide comes on my screen, the more stuff I'm assaulted with immediately, the less likely I am to listen to you, especially in those first few seconds, mm -hmm. right? Because I'm reading or I'm trying to understand the diagram. The more information my eyes have to deal with, the less focus the speaker gets. We have mouths and we have ears and we have eyes, but we only have one language processor in our brain. And it's only focused on one thing at a time, mm -hmm. which is why you can be watching a movie and then your wife says something and you did not hear us because yeah. somebody was getting shot on screen and you're thinking, that's a cool scene. And it really <laughs> happened. And part of your brain processed your wife saying, are you sure you want to eat that? Because it's, you know, but you didn't, it, you couldn't focus on it because we focus on one thing at a time. Right. And in those crucial first few seconds, whenever the screen changes, visuals beat audio 10 times out of 10. You are listening to the Align Remotely podcast, the show dedicated to helping you lead distributed teams under difficult circumstances. I am the host, Luke Shermer, and I've participated in or run distributed teams for almost a decade. As a practitioner, I'm speaking with experts on leadership, strategic alignment, and remote work to help you navigate the issues you start facing after you get your working from home gear sorted. If you've ever had to give a remote business presentation and you missed last week's episode, I highly recommend you go back and give it a listen. Uh, last week and this week, we're speaking with Dean Way, who is an expert in giving presentations remotely and adapting your approach to do well in this remote-only environment. This week, we are continuing on with details around how to structure your presentation so that uh, you achieve what you want to with the call to action and also adapting presentations to work outside of just a pure sales environment, like internally within a larger company when you're working with your teams. And let's move on to the interview. In terms of Act 3, other than what you mentioned so far, it's the, the wrap-up, the call to action then. I want to talk about the call to action for a second. The okay. worst mistake everyone makes around a call to action is that even if they understand that they're delivering a presentation in a three-act structure, they don't even mention a call to action or allude to it in any way until sometime in Act 3. The old mod around this was give lots and lots of information to an audience about some topic that's related to what you do and then pivot into your pitch. Because hmm. a call to action is basically a pitch, right? Mm -hmm. I want you to do something. I want you to buy something. I want you to stop buying something. I want you to sign up for a newsletter. I want you to register for our series of webinars around mobile edge computing, whatever. And this is the, the classic mistake. And it's not your fault if you're constructing your presentation this way. And it's not the audience's fault that they switch off mentally and oftentimes drop off if it's like a webinar where they're not ever going to be expected to speak. Because thousands of other presenters in thousands of other presentations for the last 20 years have trained the audience that that it's big chunk of information and then a pitch. And then you probably are not interested in the pitch and they're probably not very good at delivering their own pitch. You've split your webinar into a two third section and a one third section and given the audience permission to, to F off in the one third section. The only <laughs> way to, you have to build a path to your call to action. And that starts on slide two, the attention commander slide. You don't start pitching early. You don't mention what you're ultimately going to be asking the audience to do. You start alluding with your voiceover only. Don't put it on screen. But with your voiceover only, start alluding to 
interesting information or a solution or one approach companies are taking or whatever. You start mentioning it all the way back in the second slide, the attention commander slide, which is really just a statement or a point of view thing where you're trying to get a reaction from the audience. And then you build your path verbally only until you get to the act three, the part of act three where you want to pitch your call to action. Otherwise you just turn off the audience and they tune out. It's also why I tell everyone to never have a Q and a slide. Mm. Thousands of presentations before you got to that audience, train them that if they don't have a question, they have mental permission to check out. They start checking their calendar, even in real life, in a room. As soon as Q and a slide comes up, people start packing up so they can move on to the next room and the next meeting. You don't signal to the audience that it's okay to stop paying attention. Other than the commander slide, then how else would you leave these breadcrumbs throughout the presentation for, for what the CTA is? The nice part about the ability to the CTA is if you're preemptively answering the 10 or 11 questions that you'd go through, starting with, is this real? Is Why is this interesting or new to me? And so on, all the way through to how do I know it works? And, and all of the other questions you go through, then that alone will build a path to your call to action. You're setting up a construct where it says, okay, I can trust this guy. What he's talking about actually exists. I understand how it works, or I understand that they put a lot of features into this. And I mean, depending on how technical the audience is, I have to assure people, yes, I know you've got slide after slide and 400 words on the slide talking about all the features and the technology behind and underlying what you built. You will get to say all that stuff, I promise, but you're not saying it for, and showing it for the reason you think you're showing it to show that you've done all the work and you've done all the thinking. Hmm. That's why it's there. It's to show off. I, I've taken you guys through. I've shown that other people have bought it, blah, blah, blah. Or I show other people have thrown support behind this project. They want to see that you've done all the mental work. They don't want to pick through all 400 words on eight slides. <laughs> it's there to prove that you, know, you want to make the decision for them to perform your call to action as mentally easy as possible. And one of the ways you do that is to allay any fears that what they're talking about or what they're listening to might not even work. So someone has done all the hard thinking. Someone's done the hard engineering for this. Someone's put together the complex project plan. And you'll always end up with one person in a room or a Zoom meeting who's the technical person in the room. They're the one who will want you to spend 45 minutes on the technical slides. Yeah. And you need to understand how you can answer but divert that person. Because most of the people in the room, you're going to start killing their audience attention as soon as you start going into the weeds on that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And in a B2B meeting, even in a sales meeting, you're never intending, you never expect to make a sale at the end of the meeting. It's not like a B2C webinar. And so really, there's only a few things you're ever aiming for in a call to action in a B2B context. Um, ideally, you're looking for another meeting where you can go e into even further detail about particular things that the customer is interested in. Or you're looking for them in more of a webinar context to register for the next webinar or agree and schedule a schedule a discovery call, right? Uh, 30 minutes or 15 minutes to see if what we do might fit what you need. Or else getting them to sign up to be in your marketing database or something. There's always something you want them to sign up for. Hmm. Yeah. So it's not like you have to make a sale right then. So you don't have to pitch hard. But you do need to build up to your call to action. And if you don't have a call to action, then that's the equivalent of any other meeting in, in, in life where no one ever bothers to ask, okay, what's the next step? Because if no one 
ask what's the next step and then people get assigned to do something or they take the responsibility to do it, you could have handled that whole thing in an email. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally get that some things are better in written form and some things are better as presentations. And yeah. the classic newbie mistake is trying to make your presentation slide look like a Word document. Yes. <laughs> I mean it. Yeah, and, uh, that's what I, we had this bifurcation in PowerPoint 15, 20 years ago where everyone in, in the corporate world stopped using Microsoft Word and started shoving their Word documents into PowerPoint. <laughs> and so you end up with these two types of very different kinds of decks, right? You end up with decks that literally are meant to be read silently by yourself, <laughs> never presented live. In a dark room. And then you room. get the decks that are meant to present live, <laughs> and they're virtually useless unless you have an audio recording to go with them because they only have a few words or you know, graphics or stuff on the slide because all of the content was in the voiceover in the live presentation. Yeah. But shoving a Word document into PowerPoint is already a crime. Then, <laughs> there are good reasons for it. You can do diagrams and stuff way easier in PowerPoint than you can than you'll ever be able to do in Word. It, it's bad enough to shove a, power, uh, a Word document into PowerPoint, but then to force people to, to experience it as a live audience presentation is a recipe for people tuning out. Let me just let me address one thing first, and, and sure. it has to do with like common issues and fixes mm -hmm. for the technical stuff microphones, cameras, backgrounds, whatever. Variety is not your friend. Um, so specifically around audience attention and what people see on screen. Some people like to use different backgrounds. They keep trying different equipment. They think the next camera is the one that's really going to make them pop in a Zoom meeting, like whatever. Don't do it. Take a few minutes once and work with someone like a friend or a coworker. And, and once your background is working and your lighting seems good and your mic sounds good, and the camera angle is acceptable, that's your setup, right? We all have to deal with it, just freeze it and, and never deviate from that because you have enough to worry about and enough to think about during your presentations without constantly having to fix your camera. But once in a while, I'll be on a Zoom meeting and someone clearly has their camera at an angle. <laughs> I, mean, I don't mean like a, I don't mean like a turn left, turn right, but an up or down angle. So you can see like the line that their wall meets their ceiling and it's shooting up at like 45 degrees. You need to straighten up your camera. It's going to be distracting to some percentage of the audience that you don't look like you're level. You look like you're on a ship that got stuck one way or the other. Hmm. So once you have the technical stuff dialed in and it doesn't have to be great, it just has to be acceptable, just freeze that setup. So the next time you just like, you know, open your laptop, you sit down, you turn on your mic and you're done and get that off your plate because nobody does well in a presentation and no one's persuasive when they're constantly tweaking and, and twiddling and moving around or not sure of their environment. You mm -hmm. need to get comfortable and just accept what you have to work with and then just stop. I'm terrible at this and I spent way too long setting up this little studio that I have from my Zoom meetings. But once it was done, once it was dialed in, I literally come down and I, I, I hit one switch, everything comes on and I just go. And I never need to think about it anymore. Interesting. So visually, what kind of backgrounds do you suggest people have? I suggest that people never use virtual backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Unless the lighting in your room works so well that a virtual background looks evenly lit. Because otherwise, every time you move your head, you get this sort of halo-y kind of thing. Or worse, someone can see the actual real world through a, a little divot because Zoom can't correct fast enough for the virtual background. Hmm. Nobody really cares what your background is unless it's like a blood cover. Uh, yeah, it's a blood covered wall or something. Maybe don't show it. 
<laughs> if you've got a really deep interest in like photographs of clowns, maybe don't show that. <laughs> I don't know if, if you know the term. Like you're watching a video on YouTube and it's just someone talking to camera and they have what's called a jump cut, which is they obviously edited out one or more seconds bet between the word that they just said and the next word. So there's a tiny little bit of shift. Mm-hmm. You know, they like, okay, so here's, there are a lot of people starting out on YouTube who try to get everything right in one take so that they don't have any jump cuts. And this is ridiculous. A, it's not that jump cuts aren't noticed, but similar to your background, assuming it's not a virtual background, assuming uh, similar to your background in a, in a Zoom call, it's not that it isn't noticed, it's that the jump cut and your background, they're instantly forgotten because there's nothing new there for your brain to pay attention to. So it moves on. Right. And so if someone has a jump cut in a, like, if they have eight jump cuts in a five minute video, you're the next day, you're not going to remember that any of those jump cuts existed. You're only going to remember if they're lucky, what you talked about. So is, is it mostly about minimizing distraction in the same way that you don't want like colors? Right. It's minimizing be... new information. Like our brains are really great. Here's an example. Let's okay. So, Let's talk about how people could get started right now with like actionable next steps. Okay. The sure. very first thing I tell people is build up, don't throw up. Okay. <laughs> I'm in your audience. Don't build up, don't throw up. If, if I'm in your audience and your, your slide comes on my screen, the more stuff I'm assaulted with immediately, the less likely I am to listen to you, especially in those first few seconds. Mm -hmm. Right, because I'm reading or I'm trying to understand the diagram. The more information my eyes have to deal with, the less focus the speaker gets. We have mouths and we have ears and we have eyes, but we only have one language processor in our brain. And it's only focused on one thing at a time, mm -hmm. which is why you can be watching a movie and then your wife says something and you did not hear it because yeah. somebody was getting shot on screen and you're thinking, that's a cool scene. And <laughs> it really happened. And part of your brain processed your wife saying, are you sure you want to eat that? Because it's, you know, but you didn't, it, you couldn't focus on it because we focus on one thing at a time. Right. And in those crucial first few seconds, whenever the screen changes, visuals beat audio 10 times out of 10. So if you have a diagram or a lot of bullets to show, then hide most of it at first and show me more and more of it as you speak. Some people like to use just a simple PowerPoint animation for that. I'm so paranoid about something going wrong. I just, if I have a slide with five or six bullet points on it, I just draw a white box and cover the ones. And then I make a copy of the slide. And then slide two, I just, I've moved the box enough. So now you can see two bullets instead of just one and so on. There's literally no way to screw up the animation because all I'm doing is advancing the slides, but more and more is being shown. Hmm. And taking that back to the point immediately, you know, what they've seen when there's no new information there, our brains are fantastic when we look at a slide with two bullets to within a fraction of a second, understand we've already dealt with the first bullet. So it gets zero attention whatsoever. Hmm. So I'm only now paying attention to the second one because our brains are great at ignoring things that they know are safe to ignore. Someone might notice your company logo in the bottom left of your first slide. They never notice your logo again, even though it's on every slide. They never think about or notice the NDA statement uh, at the bottom in small type. Subconsciously, their brain processes everything that's in front of them, but they only focus on the new stuff. And so you owe it to me as someone in your audience that you want attention from to build up complex slides and diagrams and don't just throw up because you're the speaker, right? I'm supposed to be in good hands with you. 
That's the whole attention commander slide. You're in good hands with me. I know what I'm doing. So one way you show that is to guide and direct my attention. So I always know what's important because you're always showing me just what I need to see when it's time for me to see it. That's how a pro does a presentation. There's a sort of a built-in fear. People aren't even conscious of it. If you throw up a really complex diagram, just all at once without ever hiding part of the diagram and then like revealing more and more of it over time or a whole bunch of words on, on a slide, I don't know how long you're gonna have that slide up on the screen. And I don't know if there's something on it that's important. So I ignore everything you're saying while I race through and read the slide as quickly as possible. Why did you just throw away that attention? Beyond a certain point, it's overwhelming for someone who's new. So. For most of us, if we haven't seen the presentation before, everything on that slide is new until it's not. Right. Here's the thing. You might end up with a lot more slides, but most of them are just slight variations of the other. So the total amount of time for your presentation hasn't changed at all. But there's always something for me to look at every few seconds or every minute or two. And I'm only, I only have to pay attention to the thing that actually on screen that you want me to pay attention to. And the rest of the time, I'm listening to you. Hmm. That's also why I tell people to kill the Q&A slide, right? Audiences have been trained to mentally or even physically check out when they see a Q&A slide, unless they have a question. Most people won't even stick around for a Q&A session, if anyone even asks a question, is either boring or it's self-serving to the person who's asking the question so they can show off how smart they are. Right. But it they're trying to impress the presenter, not do something useful for the entire audience. I, I usually tell people just like whatever your last information type slide is or your call to action slide, just leave that up. And if you want to prime the pump for a Q&A period, just say, you know, that at this point, I can tell you most people have a couple of questions. I get these all the time. The first one is so and so. And you haven't put it on, on screen. You just say what the question is and then you answer your own question. And then your second one. That's you, right. Some people really like to put the most common questions. So I'll give you this tip. If you're going to put them on screen, then you have to follow this formula. It's an old copywriting trick. It's been done forever. It's well proven uh, uh, audience attention and reader attention wise. Here's what you do. You rank them in order of the most interesting to the audience or the most commonly asked. And that's usually the same thing. And then let's say you've got three of them. Here's how you, here's how you put them on screen. You put number one, the most interesting one or most common as your first one. Then you take your, your second most popular or, or interesting one. And that's your last one. So the order would be one, three, two, or if you mm -hmm. had five questions, it would be one, three, four, five, two. And the reason is people, when they see a lot of stuff on screen, they'll, if you leave them with the impression that even the least important, the last one was also really interesting, then they think that everything in the middle was also pretty interesting to them too. That kind of works for a lot of things. If you're listing your top five customers, and you could list them, of course, by size of the, the book of business they're doing with your company, but you could also list them, list them by the most like recognizable. If you sell to Lexus and Tesla and then three other companies that most people have never heard of, then you start with Tesla and yeah. then Lexus is the fifth one and the other three are in the middle somewhere. Yeah, so it's all basically the, what is it, the recency effect and the... Yeah. Um, right. What's the other one? So the first one is the primacy effect, sometimes called the halo effect. And then the last one is the recency effect. Yeah. 
Fascinating. So a lot of the focus is basically on the front end and the back end <laughs> in terms of doing it, but then you've got the 10 questions in the middle, more or less. Right. Everyone loves having their own internal questions answered without them having to ask it. Hmm. And since everyone has pretty much the same questions, you might as well just address all the questions. And if you do them in order, then you're actually building through the structure. And so you start with act one and the first two questions, and then act two takes you into the meat of it. Then act three guides them right into the call to action. And then you get your call to action. How would you describe how B2B presentations are different than just... Let, let's put it in the context of B2C webinars and B2B webinars. And a okay. lot of people, maybe everyone at some point has been on a B2C webinar where ultimately they're trying to get you to buy something at the end. That's a definition of a B2C webinar, right? You make a sale at the end. So you can think of the trajectories and histories of B2C webinars and B2B webinars, very similar to the trajectories of direct response or direct advertising and brand advertising. So for instance, over the last, let's say 100 or even 50 years, direct advertising has gone from direct mail or junk mail, like we used to call it, to faxes, and then to all the way down through to what we have today, which is targeted social media ads and uh, Instagram stories and, and everything else. It evolves and iterates, and it has the benefit of feedback. Something worked or it didn't. You made a sale or you didn't. Your conversion rate for getting a sale was 5% or 6%. And if, if it's two different messages and 6% pulls better, then it'll go to 6% and then try to improve on that. Whereas the B is very much like brand advertising. So I'll give you an example. I'm sure that other than what the cars look like, we could right now go on YouTube and find a Mercedes ad from 10 years ago and one made last week, and they will look virtually identical. Hmm. Because you don't get any feedback. They don't make a sale during the ad. No one calls a number and orders a Mercedes like they, yeah. like they might order a... On an infomercial. Yeah, kind of thing. Because it doesn't get the uh, sort of instant feedback, it has to learn from other fields and apply those lessons. And, and so what you end up with is a very slow moving and much more, on the one hand, boring, but on the other hand, more staid and, and, and professional and respectable field and presentation style in B2B than you would get with B2C. In B2C, you can do what's called stacking closes. So not only do you get you know, this product, but we're throwing in a free knife set and <laughs> a CD with the greatest hits from uh, Las Vegas. Best. Yeah, you got it, exactly. <laughs> Which is probably when you were 14 years, their target audience was 14 years old when everyone starts forming their taste in music. You get this advice and you get these books on how to do webinars and stuff. They're almost always around or, or derived from B2C. And they have this stuff that you could just never get away with in a B2B audience. You can't stack closes. In B2B, you, especially like in webinars or, or salesy type presentations, you can't create false scarcity you can't say, and this deal's good only for the next 72 hours. Everyone in a B2B audience knows that if they call you six months from now and, and ask for the same terms, they're probably going to get the same terms. <laughs> there's no scarcity. There's no uh, time sensitivity. Uh, all of those regular consumer type tools uh, are not available to us in B2B. Right. So the whole point is to keep their attention. You can get people's attention in a B2C context with like fear of loss or fear of missing out. 
that's much harder to achieve in B2B, especially for complex B2B, where you're selling a big system to a big company, hmm. where it might take months or years to actually even stand it up. And that's after the year it takes to sell it in the first place. So instead of doing that, you have to address the core questions that any B2B audience is going to ask itself in the order that they normally ask them uh, to keep the momentum going right through to the call to action, which is usually something, like I said, as small as just getting the next meeting. Yeah. Ultimately, in a B2B presentation, if, if in any sort of sales context, you're really just trying to be one of the last two companies standing as they go through their initial funnel of who's in this business, who sells what, who sells solutions to this problem, and who should we be talking to? And then being the one chosen, obviously. So at yeah, the end. being the one chosen. One meeting is not going to get you to be the one chosen. I don't go that far. I help, people <laughs> break, I help them break out. Or if, if it's a company, I help them break out into knowledge and awareness. I can't guarantee them the sale. I can't even help them with the sale. That's a whole other set of presentations. So one other question. What about internal presentations in companies in a large company? Things like department meetings, people are sitting around quite bored <laughs> on yeah. those calls. Do you have any advice for leading such meetings, participating in such meetings? So the nice part, you know, there's, it's a dual-edged store. The nice part about an internal meeting, you can skip a lot of the initial questions. You can't skip the, why is this different and I'm interested in it question, the very first one that any B2B audience is going to ask. But you can normally skip all of the ones around, is this real? Can I trust you? That kind of stuff. Because you're all part of the same team in that case. So really what you're aiming for is to A, build up, don't throw up, keep things moving all the way through. Everyone's, you know, to some degree, everyone is forced to be there. And so fine, we'll go through it. I, You might use a lot more instead of just one per presentation, you might use two or three audio calls to screen because you know that everyone is looking at their phone or looking at their email. And so you need to suck them back in with something that's a little bit visual, but not explaining what it is. And so it's unknown what it is unless you're already looking at the screen. And then towards the end, the, the call to action is normally, there, there might not even be a call to action. And if there's no call to action, then really what you're just trying to get is agreement, right? Yeah. Or, or, or at least a lack of dispute. So if you might not get like, that is a, I agree with all these numbers and I agree with the, the direction we're going in and the project seems to be progressing. And I like that there's more green than yellow and more yellow than red, but, but you, what you don't want is like an argument or a dispute. Yeah. So that's really all you're aiming for. We all have to be there. We're all trapped in this room, so to speak. So let's keep it as brisk and visually interesting for the audience and then not have a dispute at the end. Hmm. All of the, the mistakes that people might make in a sales kind of B2B presentation, they really like to double and triple down. It's, this is an internal audience. I really don't have to give a crap about their attention. So I will throw 500 words on a screen. Like people think this, right? It's like, no, that's, it, it's the same human beings looking at the screen. And so you still have to make it interesting. You still have to build up to it. You still have to control their attention as much as you can and guide it. Uh, you just can't fit more stuff on a screen by making it smaller type just because it's an internal audience. <laughs> and we've all been guilty of it. I've done it. But we all hate it. And yet we all keep doing it because we don't start with the audience in mind. We start with what we want to get out instead of concentrating on what we want the audience to get in. I will say one thing, whether it's a salesy thing or an internal like you know, status report kind of presentation. The next day, those people are only going to remember 10% of your presentation. There's no reason why you can't choose that 10%. 
upfront and then focus and double down on it in the presentation. So That's if correct. you really want to focus, if you want them to only remember the next day, the project seems to be going pretty well, then that's what you focus on. And just say it 10 different ways. Right, exactly. Not by throwing up a bunch of slides and talking about every single thing. I can't think of a single presentation where you're on the hook to completely educate everyone in the meeting about every aspect of everything. So you're there to impart enough information so they feel they have a grasp on it. Secretly, your goal is to pick the 10% you want them to remember and then focus on that. If the project's going really badly, you're not trying to make it seem like it is going well. If it's going badly, that's fine. But if the message is it's going badly and we think we're doing well at tackling this and we're, we're getting our arms around it, then that's the 10% you want them to remember. Not just not that the project's going down the toilet. Yeah. Number one rule, never lie to your audience. Someone always like, you know, picks up on it. Always. Yeah. Yeah. Plus it's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's well, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's the starting point. I agree. What's the, if people wanted to find out more, what's the best way for people to interact with you? I have, uh, my website is onio.com. So A-W-N-E-O.com. And there is a link there to a free course with a bunch of videos in order, talking about all of the acts. There's downloads, there's exactly the PowerPoint presentations, the download and checklists, and everything is explained on why, what are these 10 questions? Why are, what's the unspoken message for this slide and that slide? What are we trying to achieve here? Why do we build up? And what's our main challenge when we're trying to communicate in a B2B context? And on LinkedIn. I'm always on LinkedIn. I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. Okay. I might be the only Dean way on LinkedIn. <laughs> Great. Thank you. This episode had tons of practical information for giving effective remote presentations and probably worth a re-listen. You can also check the visual show notes where we document them just in case you want to overview as you listen to it in the future. Uh, so my favorite part of this particular one was his distinction that we aren't really looking at minimizing distraction when we're in a remote environment. We're looking at minimizing new information, so even more strictly. If you very deliberately control which bit of information comes and in what order it comes in, that gives you a lot of power when you are getting your message across. It makes it much easier to build up to a CTA and achieve whatever it is that you want to achieve, communicate whatever it is that you need to communicate. So thanks for joining and for listening and see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Align Remotely podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.